in your Bibles to James chapter 4. This morning's scripture passage will begin at verse 6 of James 4 and go to verse 10. In talking with people over the years as a pastor, I wind up having conversations about different views, different philosophies, even different religions. And it's important that we have these conversations because it helps us understand why we believe what we believe. So if you're a student or whether you're a, a regular person, as you talk and meet and discuss with people around you in the workplace or at school, perhaps with a teacher or with a neighbor. We're constantly learning about the faith as it compares to and contrasts with other views around us. And in Buddhism, for example, or Hinduism, there's something called karma. Karma is the force, it's a, it's a spiritual concept, and it's the force, a spiritual force, that's generated by a person's actions that affects your destiny in the next existence. How does it work? Well, in a nutshell, the idea is that your good actions and your good intentions combined with or compared with your bad actions and your bad intentions somewhat add up to a kind of total and as you compare your good and your bad actions and your good and your bad intentions, sort of laying the columns side by side, your specific destiny will emerge. Well, my question is, what does karma have to do with Christianity, if anything? Well, I think you have to agree that even a superficial reading of the scriptures will reveal that God cares a, quite a bit about your good and your bad actions, your good and your bad intentions. And he rewards and punishes us based on these actions and intentions. There is very definitely in the Bible a close connection between what you do in this life and what happens in the next. It's, let's call it a works principle. Theologians even call this a covenant of works. If you do right, you will be rewarded. And if you do wrong, you will be punished. So far, we see something like karma in the Bible, don't we? But that's as far as it goes. Beyond this, the scriptures know nothing of this karma idea. But there's more to the story. Because in some versions of Christianity, listen carefully, something like karma has made its way in. Like a stack of $20 bills and one of them is fake. Or a stack of fake 20s with just the top and the bottom being real. I'll give you an example. Many people who think they're Christians consider their lives on the basis more or less in a karmic concept. 
I'll give you a little test. Ask yourself if there is a heaven, if you believe that there is a heaven, and many people do, how do you think God decides who gets to go in? If your thinking goes like this, I don't know if I'll go to heaven or not. Hopefully, if the good that I do and my good intentions outweigh the bad that I do and my bad intentions, well, that's karmic Christianity. But that is not the Christianity of Scripture. Whether it's mainline Protestantism, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Roman Roman Catholicism, even some megachurches, charismatic prosperity churches have smuggled in a karmic Christianity. If you do this, God will bless you. What these karma systems, these Christian karma systems all have in common is that good works form the basis or a substantial basis for your acceptance by God. But to say karmic Christianity is what they call an oxymoron. It's self-contradictory. To put karma and Christ in the same sentence is to completely evacuate Christ of all that he said and did and everything that he stood for. It's not to say that true religion has no place for good works. In fact, James repeatedly stresses the importance of us having a living faith. No, authentic Christianity definitely doesn't destroy the works idea, but it situates our works in a specific position. I don't know if I had a a slide, but This sort of illustrates what I'm talking about. Where do good works belong in the Christian faith? Well, the first equation, faith plus works equals salvation. I'm calling that karmic Christianity. But true religion, true Christianity, notice the position of works has moved. Faith equals salvation plus works. So your good intentions and your bad intentions, your good behavior and your bad actions, they're important in Christianity, just not as a basis of your salvation. They come after your salvation and describe the way that you work out your salvation in a godly, God-honoring manner. Just by moving where works are in the equation, we move from a false counterfeit Christianity, this karmic Christianity, to a true, biblical, Christ-honoring faith. The name we're going to give to the true religion, and that's all I need for the slide this morning, is I'm calling it a religion of grace. A gracious Christian religion. And in our text today, this is exactly what we read. The solution for the wayward church today and for the wounds and hurts and confusion in your life and in mine may be found in the triumph of God's grace. 
See, James again and again has emphasized in his letter what the Pilgrim Church needs, not only to survive, but to thrive in a negative world which is often hostile to faith. What we need is the grace of God. God is generous. He gives us good things. And today we learn that God is gracious and he gives us things that we do not deserve. He is exceedingly gracious. He is abundantly gracious. In fact, it is with this in mind that I've called my sermon Grace for the Humble. And I'd like to discuss two points this morning. First of all, just a general overview of grace in the Bible. It's a huge topic. It's maybe the most important topic in scriptures. And then we're going to dive in to talk about the different movements of grace that we see in our passage. Let's begin first by reading God's holy word and asking his blessing on its preaching this morning. Grace for the humble, beginning at James 4, verse 6. But he gives more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let us pray. Father, your word is eternal. Heaven and earth will pass away, but your words will not pass away. And so they are exactly what we need this morning so that we can not just survive but thrive in a very difficult world where many of us are afflicted, if not by our own minds and hearts, and we are, but even society around us makes Christian faith difficult. And so we need your grace. Reveal it to us today in your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, an overall picture of grace. I have three Bible verses in mind here. The first one is that grace is a teacher. Let's look at Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. Grace is a teacher. The word Paul uses here in Titus 2:11 and 12 is training for the grace of God this is Titus 2:11 and 12 for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people training or teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age grace is a teacher what this means is God's grace, which is his undeserved kindness towards us, is an instructor on how we should live in this world. Here's how it works. Since we deserve God's punishment and wrath because of our sin, and since Jesus has died on the cross to take that punishment and wrath in our place, this is God's grace. And seeing this cross and knowing God's goodness in this way, we are taught on how we are to respond. We're, 
We're shown the path that we walk. We no longer want to do and say and think the same things that we used to do and say and think. God's grace has appeared and he's brought salvation for all people, Titus says. And since his grace has appeared in bringing salvation, which we absolutely do not deserve, we've given up this karmic concept of trying to make God happy with us. Instead, grace is training us to live godly lives, not to earn God's favor or to make sure the good outweighs the bad. But we live godly lives and we renounce foolish things and we say no to sin because it pleases the Lord and nothing brings us more joy and happiness having received salvation, having been born again to a living hope than this. Grace is a teacher. The second Bible picture of grace, we're kind of getting an overall picture of grace here, is in 2 Peter 3.18. 2 Peter 3.18. We're doing a little traveling through the scriptures this morning. 2 Peter 3.18. What's the first thing that grace does? Grace is a teacher. He's a trainer. If you're, if you like to, uh, if you're in sports, or you like to lift weights, or play basketball, or if you're a runner, we all need a coach or a trainer, and the coach helps us to improve. He or she gives us tips on on how to excel in our our, uh, sport. And grace is that teacher, it's a trainer. But secondly, grace grows. 2 Peter 3.18. The last verse of this little letter, 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity Amen. See, I used to think that grace and salvation was sort of a a one-shot deal. God sort of brings the cross into your life. He opens your eyes and you discover that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And the dump truck backs up. Beep, 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 beep. And a giant load of grace is dropped into my life. And then the empty truck pulls away, never to appear again. But here he says grace grows. It grows. Yes, it's a one-shot deal. There's something amazing about the Christian faith in that all the grace you ever need, you're you're given the moment you believe. But then another aspect or another dynamic, I'll put it this way, is that we grow in grace on a day-to-day basis. I need more grace today than yesterday. There's a lot of layers to this, and I won't go into it all this morning, but you need more grace today than you needed yesterday. And so Peter is urging you to, to grow in this grace, to ask for more grace, to recognize that you need more grace. And in all fairness, the the growth of this grace, since we have everything that we need in that first sort of big deposit of salvation, the growth in grace has more to do perhaps with a growing understanding of that grace, a growing experience of that grace, a widening of our vistas of the grace 
that God has given, that perhaps when you're small, like small in stature, you're just a child, you can't see over the counter, but now that you're tall, you can see over the counter and there's a cupboard full of food. Grow in grace. In our overall picture, this is very important. Not only is grace a trainer, a teacher, but grace grows. And then third and final picture, again, this this could be an entire life study. It should be, but just for this morning, we're getting three snapshots of grace in the Bible. This relates to my second point in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Little Bible work doesn't hurt. Second Timothy chapter two and verse one, relating to not just grace as a trainer and grace growing, but here we see grace strengthens. Grace strengthens. You then, my child, Second Timothy two, verse one, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You see, grace not only takes me and reaches down in that, what the Psalms call that pit of the miry clay. Think of miry clay as when you put your foot in a, in a pit of clay and it just sticks and I can't get out. Maybe it's more like quicksand that you step into the quicksand and it draws you in, it sucks you down. And the harder you struggle, I'm told, in quicksand, fortunately, I can't give you personal testimony here. I don't care to have personal testimony of quicksand. But spiritually speaking, I know what quicksand feels like. Quicksand is when you're living in karmic Christianity and trying your hardest to claw your way out of this this pit of miry clay and and grace comes down and, and grabs me and and does for me what I cannot do for myself, and, and he cleanses me, he, he washes me, he embraces me, he puts a new robe of, of glory, the king's robes, the king's himself robes, and he clothes me in royal, like royalty. But now I'm told I need to be strong in grace. This one-time deliverance needs to grow in my life And I need to find myself being strengthened for the battle of living the Christian life. Not according to karma, but according to the grace of God. See, I think that may be where your biggest struggle is as a Christian is you're constantly slipping back into a works program. You wake up in the morning and you're thinking, Jesus loves me, this I know. And by lunchtime, it's like, no, he doesn't. You need to be strong in the grace of God. And then you get your head screwed on straight at lunch, and you say, that person didn't look at me right, but that doesn't matter, Jesus loves me. Or I didn't get a good grade on the test, but that's okay, Jesus loves me. But by the end of the day, life is bad again. Well, you need to be strong in the grace of God. So Timothy is the child of Paul. A grown man is being called a child. How tender is that? How affectionate that a pastor would call his protege, 
his child. And of course, Timothy called Paul a father. And what more fatherly thing could there be than to tell your son or your daughter, you need God's grace and you need to be strong in God's grace. Well, that's our overview. Let's jump into James. My second point this morning is to see in James, the move, I'm calling it the movements of grace. Now, movement could refer to a symphony, but I'm thinking in terms of action. There's, there's action here that grace is either creating or requiring or encouraging. There's actually seven actions. We're going to go through each of them briefly. First of all, the first movement of grace is in verse 6 of our text back in James chapter 4, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This movement is grace triumphing over pride. So it's a battle, and grace and pride are going at it. Pride is you, by the way, and me. And we know we've got this. We're going to win this battle. We're going to define ourselves. We're going to live our lives. We're going to get what we want, when we want it, how we want it. And we're in the ring with grace, and there's an uppercut. Oh, and it sets us back. Man, uh, that was a good one. I think I can get... I think I can do this. Ref looks in her eyes. You there? Is ever there? Oh, yeah, I'm fine. Okay, I'm, I'm going to establish myself before God. I'm going to earn his favor. My good is going to outweigh the bad. It's a jab right to the face. And it knocks you flat on your back. Grace triumphs over pride. I think that's what this is saying. It says God opposes the proud. He's, he's battling the proud. He's resisting the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Your natural state is to insist on your own way. But when he gives more grace, that's the first part of verse 6, he triumphs over pride and enables you to see the world as you ought to see it. It's belonging to him. And your best life is the life which is aligned with him and not your own agenda. Who are the proud, by the way? You are proud when you're envious of others, when you're discontent with what God has provided with, for you, and especially when you're out of step with his will in order to obtain the thing that he hasn't given you. Augustine said that there's hardly a page in the Bible that doesn't speak about God resisting the proud and giving grace to the humble. In fact, that's where the whole story begins, is God resisting the proud in the garden. But right after he resists the proud, he gives grace to the humble. Because Adam and Eve, in their, in their dejection, in their despondency, are, are humble indeed. And what does God do? He gives grace to the humble. Ironically, the grace needed to triumph over your natural inborn arrogance which characterizes our hearts, is only given when you admit your need for God's grace in the first place. It's a little bit like a circular equation. You say, Pastor, I don't understand that. How can God ask 
me something for something that I don't have in the first place. You're starting to get it. That's what grace is. You say, I still don't get it. And I say, receive it. Grace triumphs over pride. And relatedly, the second movement of grace in our text, it not only triumphs over pride, but the next verse in verse 7, it enables submission to God. Verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Submission is your first act of humility, and so God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, and so grace necessarily, the second movement of grace, needs to be that it enables submission to God. This means that even if you don't feel humble or feel like being open to receiving God's gift, submission is the place to be. Submission to God can get the ball rolling in a way. It gives you a perspective or a taste of what life aligned with the Creator was really meant to be. In a way, God will sometimes allow you to learn as you go. As you submit to God, you discover the freedom of His grace. And you start to see the bondage of your own program and and how narrow and confining it actually was. What does submit mean? It means to place yourself under his lordship. And, of course, that's the basic salvation prayer. If you confess with your mouth, how does it go? That Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But this isn't, a, isn't possible apart from God's grace. Grace enables submission to God because it reveals to you that your best life is his blessed life. I like that saying. Your best life is his blessed life. I mean that the life that he will bless, the life lived under his rule and authority, This is the best possible life that you can live. And it's God's grace that enables it. The position of the Christian should be that of a soldier to whom the centurion in the gospel said, go, and he went, and do this, and he didn't, and he did it. It's not ours to question as if we were to become masters or the commander in that story. It's ours to obey like a soldier without questioning. Now, this is not popular. Nobody likes submission. But submission is a ready, prompt, and willing obedience in your life. Not to delay, that's insubordination, and not to neglect. And it's God's grace that enables this counterintuitive movement. Number three, not only does it triumph over pride and enable submission to God, it arms you for spiritual battle. That's the second half of verse seven, where we learn about the devil. Take a look at the text. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This movement of grace relates to spiritual warfare. 
It goes along with submission to God. It's actually hand in hand. When you place yourself under God's authority, you agree to and are armed with the weapons that you need to stop fighting God and to start fighting your real enemy, the enemy of your life and the enemy of the world, who is the devil. And the promise here is that when you're equipped with the spiritual weaponry and armor that you need, you will triumph, you will succeed. He not only arms you for battle, but grace guarantees your victory. I love 2 Corinthians 10, 4, and 5. I probably mentioned it last week. The, the weapons that he has given you are mighty through God. Isn't that great? Whatever you're facing, whatever the problem is, the weapons that he provides are mighty through God for the tearing down of every stronghold that sets itself up in an opposition to the Lord. Paul says in Ephesians 6.11 that we're to put on the whole armor of God, the whole panoply, the whole kit and caboodle, literally, that we may stand against the devil's schemes. And when you go through the list in Ephesians, and it's a good exercise, maybe you could reread it this afternoon, the spiritual armor in Ephesians 6, it's great. What you find out is every single piece of armor was God's armor first. Now that's important because in the Old Testament, when David went to fight Goliath, do you remember what happened? What did Saul do for him? He put his armor on him. David's a shepherd boy. He's a man of the fields. He's tanned and sunburned. He's not used to wearing heavy armor. And it's hanging on him like this. This isn't going to work. So he takes off man's armor and he uses his slingshot, which in my analogy is God's armor, and he wins. See, when you have man's armor, you will fail. But when you have God's armor, that's where the victory comes. We're looking at the movements of grace. Grace triumphs over pride, number one. It enables submission to God. It arms you for spiritual battle, number four. I love this one. Grace overcomes your resistance to repentance. Now, if you go to the doctor or you see a nurse, she will usually say something like this. This will just be a pinch. Ooh. Do you resist that? I do. And if a doctor says it isn't going to hurt, he's usually wrong. We have resistance, you see. Rightly so, to things that cause us pain. And grace overcomes this resistance because repentance is painful. It is like going to the doctor or a dentist. Resistance cleans us out of the poison and the, the nasty stuff, the gunk, the disease, the virus. has taken over your body and it's actively replicating bad things inside of you. It's using your own systems to shut your system down. That's what a virus does. And for some reason, we don't want to get rid of it. 
We're resistant to that. Just like this. You know, some people like their personal space, and if you lean in, they lean back. They're resistant to you moving into their space. And we're resistant to God moving into our space. And what this text is telling us is that grace overcomes that resistance. Take a look. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James portrays repentance in two areas. Hands and hearts. What's the difference? The hand is on the outside of your body, obviously. And so, what is James thinking of when he says, purify your hands? He's thinking that the things that you're doing with your body, the places that you're going, your actions are sinful. But that isn't the only place we need the grace of repentance, is it? What does the text say? I guess cleanse your, cleanse your hands and then purify your hearts. So wash your hands and have a pure heart. What a beautiful picture. For some reason, we're resistant to washing our hands when it comes to our sin. We don't want to stop doing what we're doing. Now, some of you are advanced in the school of Christian hypocrisy. You've stopped doing what you shouldn't be doing, but you still love it. And so you look very godly. Look how clean her hands are. What a fine figure he strikes for a Christian man. But within that heart of that woman or that man is a heart that needs to be purified. And grace overcomes our resistance to that. I mentioned earlier the paradox. We see it here as well. When you have grace to repent and desire to draw near to God, as our text tells us, he's going to enable you to do that, and he's going to draw near to you. But it's as if God is standing back and waiting for you to do something that he's already told you you can't do. Jesus gave words to this paradox when he said, To him who has, more will be given. But to him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. But even as you wrestle with this paradox and deal with a sometimes distant-seeming God, see, God isn't drawing near to me. I don't feel close to God. I can't see him. Even in those times, the words of Isaiah 54 come as such an encouragement to me. I hope it's helpful to you for a brief moment. Isaiah 54, verse 7. For a brief moment, God says, I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord. We're looking at the movements of God's grace and Number four is that he overcomes resistance to repentance. And five is grace makes sorrow over sin refreshing. 
sorrow over sin becomes refreshing. Take a look at our passage in verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This is scary, isn't it? First time I read this, seemed like some of the strangest verses in the Bible and very unappealing. What a description of the Christian life. I mean, talk about stereotypes. Christians are sad, discouraged, angry. Well, let's remember, the wisdom from above calls you to live your life by different standards than the negative world that we live in. You become the first fruits of a new creation. And the society around you and many of your friends, perhaps even members of your own family, they've succumbed to the dominant way of thinking about how this world is made. And that is hostile to God. And being friends with the world, we saw last Sunday, makes you an enemy of God. But on the other hand, to be friends with God means that you don't celebrate love or value the things around you the same way that your friends do. You have a different way of thinking. It's different. You know that the world and its pleasures are passing away, but the one who does the will of God will endure forever. And so grace, you see, makes sorrow over sin refreshing. It's refreshing to know that I don't have to celebrate what my friends celebrate. I don't have to value what society values. James here is saying that if you turn your laughter into mourning or your joy into dejection, he's not telling you to live a drab and dreary life. He's not, one commentator says, he's not requiring an extroverted party hopper to be transformed into an introverted party stopper. Laughter and joy in this setting are marks of the worldly person whose life is based on this world, who's getting only satisfaction in this life, in his or her material possessions, fighting against God, indulging sin. The joy that's commanded in James is heavenly by contrast. It's pure. And when you face trials, it triumphs by God's grace. So the challenge here then is to exchange your false joy with this heavenly joy. And grace shows you where true joy is. It's found in grieving what God grieves and in celebrating what God celebrates. It's loving what God loves and hating what God hates. It's learning, in, learning to live in the new world which he's making and running away from the world which was and is killing you. Jesus picks up on this when he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. For the Lord, when he explained mourning was connected to comfort, he invites you to mourn, not so that you will feel collapse under your weight of sorrow, but to lift your spirits, that there is meaning in the difficulties of life, in the hand of God, who is actively at work in your trials and troubles to bring about his blessing. And grace teaches us this. It overcomes resistance to repentance. It makes sorrow over sin refreshing. And the sixth is that he frees you 
from having to exalt yourself in verse, verse 10 of our text. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now there's a seventh one that we'll get to next week, but I'm going to end with this one. Grace frees you from having to exalt yourself. This is what I mean. Every impulse in you wants to be noticed, wants to be praised, wants to win, wants to get the A, wants to be better than the person on your right, the person on your left. And grace frees you from having to do that, having to prove yourself constantly. I love the quote in Chariots of Fire, the character Abraham said, I have 10 seconds, he's the sprinter. Eric Liddell was the distance runner. The sprinter said, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. Wow, that's a lot of pressure on a 100-meter dash. But that's what grace frees us from having to do. And in, in the movie, Abraham is, is Jewish and Eric Liddell is a Christian. And in that movie, in that story, which is a, a true story to some degree, but we're going to speak of it in terms of the karmic Christianity, whether it be Judaism or Islam or secularism, Buddhism, Hinduism. This constant need to prove yourself and grace frees you from having to do that. You see, it's the Lord that exalts you. You don't have to lift yourself up. And so even one of the greatest men in all of history, the Apostle Paul, was content to be the last in line. I need to hear that as a preacher. Jesus taught this when he said, when you're invited to a meal, don't take the best seat because the host may ask you to move down. But take the lowest seat and then he might just ask you to move up. That's the best. See, I think a lot of us are in bondage to our own need to exalt ourselves. To get what I have coming to me. What I've worked for. What I've deserved. Everyone should see it. They should know this. And what grace is teaching me is I can be free from the bondage of having to exalt myself. Well, the last one we'll get to next week is that grace fuels love for the, for the family of God. And that's verses 11 and 12. But for now, I do want to point out that there is such a thing as an over-gracious ministry. Grace, extravagant grace, can be abused in the sense that it can become an excuse for sin. It can diminish Christ's radical call to discipleship. You can use it in an arbitrary way. That means there's grace for me, but judgment for you. By the way, this happens in marital arguments all the time. One of the spouses, just say it's me, is very keen on pointing out the sin in his wife's life. But as far as I'm concerned, God is very gracious to me. We can also do the reverse, which can be equally damaging. We can insist on grace in the other person's life and then beat ourselves to a bloody pulp. That's not a good alternative either. So yes, grace can be abused and neglected. It can also be forgotten, though. We can forget that where sin abounds, Romans 5, 21, grace abounds all the more. And that karmic 
do better, try harder religion all too easily slips into our families, our parenting, our marriages, our friendships, our ministries, your workplace. I know profit is the bottom line in most of the places where you work, but that doesn't mean if you're a supervisor you need to destroy your employees on the way there. This do-good, try-hard notion of karmic Christianity takes over like this virus I mentioned earlier, commanding the reproductive centers of our religious lives and churning out poisonous toxins that destroys us from within. I can't end a sermon about grace and karma without mentioning one of my favorite songs. It's how my daughter is named. Bono's song, Call Grace, makes this profound point. Grace travels outside of karma. It's as if the world is caught up in an engine, and the engine is grinding out rewards and punishments, rewards and punishments, rewards and punishments, rewards and punishments. And grace, like the chords of that song, floats over that engine, that nasty smoking engine, like the most beautiful woman you would ever see. When he's asked to explain that song, Bono says this, you see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Or in physics, in physical laws, every action is met by an equal or opposite one, he said. And he continues, it's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet, along comes this idea called grace to upend all that as you reap, so you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason. It defies logic. Love, he says, interrupts, if you like, the, the consequences of your actions, which in my case, he says, is very good news. Indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. Isn't that beautiful? We need more grace. To do what James is asking us to do is impossible apart from God's grace. But he gives grace to the humble. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we end our time in your word this morning desiring to submit to you and yet finding ourselves unable to do so because of our sinful pride, desiring to humble ourselves before you, desiring to draw near to you, desiring to fight those things that are killing us, and yet, Lord, absolutely impotent, needing the very things that we need you to give us and not wanting you to give them to us even though we know we need them. Duck. So would you do for us in your grace, your sovereign grace, what we cannot do for ourselves. Command what you will, but give us everything we need to do what you've commanded.
grace that you have done just that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.